Several weeks, I taught about entering God's rest from Hebrews chapter 3. A very rich portion of scripture for me to go through, God ministering to me, hopefully he's ministering to you. And I shared two things that day. Number one, uh, that God's rest is God's best for us. Now that's not a cliche, that doesn't come from some motivational talk. Uh, this book is written to the Hebrews. These people have a Jewish background, so they understand the people that came out of the Exodus, who wandered in the desert, who eventually made it through the Promised Land. That is the picture for you and me. God's best for Israel was the land flowing with milk and honey. God designed this place for them. And here's what God said. God said it's a land flowing with milk and honey, that one day every man would sit under his vine and his fig tree. God said, everywhere your foot treads, I have already given you this land. Now, there were also giants in the land. There were people hostile to Israel. There were fortified cities. What that means for you and me is this. We do not live a life void of trials, tribulations, or difficult times. There is a doctrine out there that if you accept Christ, those things will never be a part of your life. You'll be healthy and wealthy. Nothing can be further from the truth. Listen to what James says in the New Testament. He said, blessed is the man or the woman who endures temptation or trials. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown which the Lord has provided to those who love him. So rather than skirt around trials, that's what I try and do. I try to avoid them. I try everything, right? The Bible says drive right through them. That's what Job did. That's what Daniel did. That's what the great men and women of faith, Hebrews 11, did. And when you come through the other side, there's something that you've gained. There's something about our faith. There's something that happened to Job where he said, Lord, I I heard of you through the hearing of the ear, but now I've seen you face to face. There's a refinement. So for Israel, they were to find favor with God by walking through these things. And though the land was a rest, it was there that they would see God. So that, that was the first point I had. Uh, the second point was that faith is a rest. I hope everybody understands this. If you're a follower of Christ, faith now is a rest. Now, in the denomination I grew up in, I was restless. Because I was always looking over at the hedge of another philosophy, of another religion, because I thought what I had experienced could not be God. There had to be more to God. And so when I found Christ, all that was put to bed. I don't need another philosophy. Uh, I'm not trying to appease a holy God. I've said this a thousand times. I'll probably say it a thousand times more. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, not D-O. When Jesus died on the cross and said it was finished, there was nothing I could add to that. So here's the deal. Faith is a rest. I don't struggle with does God love me. I don't struggle with life. I don't even struggle with death. All those things have become complete in me and hopefully you in Christ. So so God's rest is the place where we thrive and where we flourish. Today we're going to look at part two. Look at Hebrews chapter four, verse one. It begins with therefore. In other words, the writer's connecting two ideas. He says, therefore, verse 1, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let let us fear lest any of you should, should seem to come short of it. He's writing this letter so no one would miss out on all that God has for us. Verses 2 to 7, he brings Israel and they're failing up again. Verse 8, he said, if Joshua had given them rest, then he, Joshua, would not afterward have spoken of another day. 
Therefore, there remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, speaking of God, has himself also entered from his works as God did from his, taking us back to Genesis. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone would fall short of it through disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, you can't talk about rest without talking about two things, at least from a Jewish perspective. One is Moses, because he was the lawgiver, and the second is the Sabbath. The Sabbath, we all understand, was a day of rest. So let's think this through. Moses leads people in an exodus out of bondage into the promised land, right? Spiritually, the whole Bible is an exodus story. The whole story of God's work in this world is leading people out of bondage into freedom. And freedom ultimately found in Jesus Christ. Now, Moses was the lawgiver. And one of the laws was the Sabbath. But let's think of the law in general, right? People don't know the Bible today think that the Ten Commandments were restrictive, right? The thou shall not. God's taken away all my fun and all my freedom. Actually, what God was doing was giving them a world they couldn't imagine. Just think with me for a minute if everybody lived by the Ten Commandments. Would you want to live in that world? I think I would, right? It would be a world, the only analogy I can think of, it would be a world where we would no longer have country music, okay? Now, listen, I'm not down on country music. My daughter listens to it. I've acquired a taste for it. But let's be honest, the, the lyrics aren't intellectually stimulating, right? In fact, most of country music lyrics is you get the dog back, the car back, the wife back, right? So, so in a world of the Ten Commandments, no one would steal your stuff. No one would steal your wife, your car, any of those things. God, like he gave to Adam variety, free lead of all the trees, was giving Israel and, his, and their people a wonderful world to live in. And then God drops this commandment in. Keep holy the Sabbath day. Blows my mind. God said, how about this? How about this because I'm a God of abundance? Go do whatever you want one day a week. Go play. Go cease from all work. If you have a hobby, go do it. Whatever you like, go and do it. That's how benevolent God was. Uh, I love Les Miserables. And I love that scene in Les Miserables where Jean Valjean is going to find Cosette, right? She's this orphan who who is living with people that are extorting money from her mother. And Jean Valjean goes there and he finds out that all the other children are playing but the person in charge of Kazette is making her iron and work. And he puts a bag of coins on the table and he said, I want her to play. I'm paying this money so Kazette can play. That is the God that we serve. He wants us to play, to enjoy life to its fullest. He wants us to thrive. And the Sabbath day became the joy of generations. Now, I know what somebody's thinking here. Somebody's thinking, look, I'm not the brightest bulb in this bunch. But Pastor Bob, you're bragging about one day of rest. Don't we have two in America? We have this thing called the weekend. And I want to say this. The weekend is a million miles removed from anything the Sabbath was intended to be. First of all, the reason you have a weekend is because the Jews rested on this 
on the seventh day, which for them was Saturday, Christians came along and had their day of worship on a Sunday. And so in the West, we morphed this together. And that's why we actually have a weekend. Remember, when they were in Egypt, Pharaoh worked them seven days a week. And that's a Pharaoh mentality is that we never rest. He's a type of Satan. Satan wants to grind you and not make you rest. He wants to work you to death. He wants you to be guilty and in heavy bondage and not know who you are or who you were meant to be. He wants you to live with a slave mentality. When we work and don't rest, we have a slave's mentality. And he's numbered 666. Revelation, he's going to put a number on you. That's all you are to him as a number. And all you are to God is made in the image of God. You are more than somebody who just works. And I'll get into that in a minute. And so we were meant to rest. This is a beautiful principle. It's a wonderful thing that we were giving. And there was something deeper than the Sabbath than anything we could imagine. I mentioned Abraham Joshua Heschel a few weeks ago. He's written a classic book called The Sabbath. He's not a believer. He's Jewish. He said, but the Sabbath comes like a caress. Wiping away fear, sorrow, somber memories. His daughter, Susanna, who I think still teaches at Dartmouth, says she has fond memories of Friday evening. And if you don't know anything about the Sabbath, it starts when you can see one star in the sky on Friday night. And she said, I remember 20 minutes before the Sabbath, mom making final preparations for food, taking the challah bread out of the oven, dad lighting all the candles. She said it was almost like we were transformed through time. She said it was though as we were being emotionally and physically changed. Her father said, unless one learns how to relish the taste of Sabbath, one will be unable to enjoy the taste of eternity and the world to come. And here's why. Because as human beings, you and me, six days a week, it's all about space. It's all about acquiring. Look at our lives, right? Everything's square footage from our cars to our houses, even to our places of worship. Mega churches, grand cathedrals. Human beings are all about space. And God is all about eternal. And God is all about sacredness of time. Read your Bible and think about time and where God met human beings. Read about Jacob wrestling with the angel and how special that place was, how sacred it was. And Isaiah coming into the throne of God and being undone when he saw the holiness of God. Think of the woman who broke the alabaster box of ointment and washed Jesus' feet. And you can go on and on and see the sacredness of time. It's interesting, in the Hebrew, there is no word for thing. And we got a lot of things, right? We got a lot of stuff. The Hebrew has no word for things. Because their life was, and they were prone to things just like you and me, but their life was more. It was a pursuit of God. A relentless pursuit of who God was is what the Jews were all about. Herschel went on to say, six days a week we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. He said, on the Sabbath we care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. He said, the world has our hands but our soul belongs to someone else. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? And so there was something intrinsic about the Sabbath beyond mere rest. Now, follow me on this. Because this morning it's going to be about quality over quantity. And I want to mine out a couple verses for you. Look at verse 10. 
For he who has entered his rest has also himself ceased from work as God did from his. Twice, when the Sabbath is mentioned here in Hebrews and in Exodus, we are taken back to Genesis. Where God creates the world in six days and then he rests on the seventh. Now think this through with me. Did God rest because he was tired? I mean, come on, people. Right? He spoke the world into existence. He couldn't have been tired from saying, let there be light and let there be cattle, etc., right? In Exodus, they were told to keep holy the Sabbath. Six days you shall work, the seventh you shall rest. Why? Because God rested from his labor. Now, it has to be more than we're tired and we need a day off. That's the American weekend. There's got to be something deeper than that. So let's ask ourselves the question, why did God rest? Before we ask why God rests, think about this. Every day of creation, God said something very similar. Every day when he looked at what he had done, it said he said it was good. And on the sixth day, it was very good. And then he rests on the seventh. And what we can glean from that is that work was good. Work was natural. Adam worked before the fall. He tended the garden. He was to multiply, subdue the earth. So we were created to work. Yesterday, we had our faith in science conference here. And uh, some of you who were here, Doug Axe, A-X-E, was like a rock star. A molecular biologist, young guy, brilliant. And he said something that really jarred me yesterday and made me think. He said, we live in a world of designers. Think about it. You know, fashion, music, uh, television, film. We, we live in a world where we design things every day. We're a world of designers. How could that not point to a creator that designed all of this and all of us? It's wonderful. God's a designer, and he gave us brains, and he gave us talent, and he gave us fingers, and we can create. So work is good, but work can become bad when it's not in its rightful place. And God every day said it was good, and then he rests on the seventh. What was God doing? What was the pattern? God was content with creation. Every day he said it was good. He was content. And what that means for me and you is that, number one, we need finish lines and we need celebration. Now, I'll be the first to say I'm the chief of all sinners here when it comes to restlessness. All right? Led to my burnout. For me, there was always another hill to conquer. There was always something else to do. Didn't stop to celebrate enough. Didn't have enough finish lines. Have them now. In fact, my finish line is quickly approaching. (laughs) Somewhere around 4 o'clock today, I crossed the finish line. I look back, and I've learned to be content. I've done some things well this week. I've done some things not so well. But I need time, maybe not 24 hours, but I need time to think my own thoughts, to read what I want to read. And, and here, here's, here's what the idea of Sabbath was. I need time to find out who I am and who God is and how all that works together. See, because I'm more than a pastor. You're more than an accountant. You're more than a nurse. That's what you do six days a week. The Sabbath was intended by God for you to get in touch with God beyond what you do and beyond your work. It was the care of the soul. And it was a beautiful thing that God gave Israel. 
That they would understand that they were the people of God. They were delivered from bondage. That he was their God. And they were his people. And they were the apple of his eye. You can't figure that out working seven days a week. I understand their seasons. I understand when you're building things. There are seasons of life where you've got to work harder. But the world has a mentality today to work and work and never rest. And I think today our culture is afraid of what they might get in touch with and afraid of what they might hear. The Sabbath was a cure for restlessness. Webster defines restlessness as the inability to rest. Duh, right? From, But it says it comes from two opposite ends of the spectrum, from anxiety... When we take on too many cares and boredom, when like everything's already done for us. That's our culture today, anxiety and boredom. The Sabbath was designed that Israel would trust God, trust God for their business, trust God for their crops, the early and the latter rain, trust God to keep their enemies at bay. Peter says, cast all your cares on him, he cares for you. And so we have this hidden gem in verse 10 that just as God rests, we need to rest. What that means is we need to become content with who we are and what we do. Now, it's not easy. Paul said he learned contentment. It doesn't come naturally. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I'm content. We learn contentment. We learn that who we are in Christ is enough. Um... I talked about finish lines. I talked about celebrations. We need to celebrate more. We need to celebrate the great things God has done and the, and the things that we've been asked to accomplish. You know, I, whenever I get in a season in my life where I'm kind of in flux or flummoxed, I always go back to my grandfather. My grandfather worked at the Inquirer Daily News till he was 76, five days a week. He's still the greatest man I've ever known. Eighth grade dropout. He used to walk me on the boardwalk in Atlantic City, teaching me to read, telling me I had to go to college one day. Paid for my schooling. And uh, he was an amazing man. He was strong. He was generous. And the thing about my grandfather is he was content. So was his generation. Lived in a small house in South Philly. They never had a downsize because all you did is you lived in this row home. Things got tight with the kids. And then when the kids left, you were back in a house that was already paid for. So here's my grandfather, eighth grade dropout, and he's going, traveling the world, uh, paying for my school, and so content. The Greek word for rest in Hebrews 4 means to settle down, literally to colonize, to be at home wherever you are. Israel, when they came in the land, the land was given to them by lots. Some had lots by water, some were in the wilderness, some were on rocky ground, but everybody had to be content with their lot in life. No pun intended. The life God created was not a life where you would acquire more and be happy. It didn't center around where you lived, but it was a life where you understood God had placed you there, and every step of the way, he was working on your behalf. Now, I'm concerned today because we live in a world where millennials uh, can travel the world. They can see on Instagram everything everybody's doing. They can see gap years and people traveling exotic islands. Everyone's looking over the hedge. Everybody has wanderlust. And it's very important that we have contentment with who God created us to be and who we were made to be. Now, here's the key. 
What did Jesus think of the Sabbath? That's always the question that should be on our minds. What did Jesus think on the Sabbath? Well, first of all, he had these group of men following him around, the religious leaders, who were always trying to trick him up on the Sabbath, right? You read the Gospels? Uh, Luke 4 is almost comical. Jesus and his 12 guys, they're walking the road, and they're, they're picking grain. It's the Sabbath. Now, uh, the Jews, they were told that on their farms, they would leave the edge of their crops for gleaning, right? If you were poor, you could pick those crops. If you were traveling, you know, they didn't have stops on the turnpike. You would just glean, right? So Jesus and his guys, they're gleaning. And the Pharisees come out and say, you're doing what's wrong on the Sabbath. Now, where were they? In the corn stalks? Like, what was going on, right? It's almost comical. And then Jesus says something comical. He says... Have you never heard? And he gives them like one of the most familiar stories from the Old Testament. Their smoke had to be coming out of their ears. Oh, you never read what David did? And they revered David, by the way. You never revered that David, when he was being chased, he and his men went into the tabernacle and ate the showbread? The showbread was on the table of presence. Only the priest could eat the showbread. Now, If you read that wrong, it looks like situational ethics, right? It looks like Jesus is saying, look, I have the right to choose what laws to keep and what not to keep based on situations, right? So in other words, if I'm late for work or church, I don't have to drive 65, I can drive 90, right? Or if my marriage is failing, I can go out and have an affair, right? It's just all situations? No. Jesus tied two ceremonial things together. He took the only law that was ceremonial, that looked forward to something greater, keep holy the Sabbath, and he tied it to something in the tabernacle that was looking forward to something greater. The bread in the tabernacle was looking forward to the one who would one day say that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and the one who would be the bread of life. And then he tied the Sabbath to himself when he looked him in the eye and he said, the son of man, that's a messianic term from Daniel, is the Lord of the Sabbath. And what Jesus was saying is that the Sabbath was pointing to a day when there would be final rest for the people of God. This is why when Paul writes to the Colossians, he says, don't let anyone judge you in food or drink regarding festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Does everybody get that? See, that's why we don't strive anymore. That's why sometimes legalists can look at us like we're these grace freaks, right? Because they think, oh my gosh, what are you doing? And it's so hard to tell them, look, we are free in Christ. We are not free to do what we want. You know, holiness just means to be separate. But the substance is Christ. I don't need the latest book that's out telling me the secret of Christianity or the next great revelation. The substance is Christ. Paul said this to the Colossians. Beware, that means be on guard, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Listen. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and all power. 
Nothing that you and I have today that the early church in Acts didn't have, that the church fathers didn't have. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God richly dwelling in us. We are complete in Him. Faith is a rest. That's why Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, have all these burdens on you, and I will give you rest for your souls, because my commandments are not burdensome, and they'll not make you weary. And so we have all these appendages, but the reality is we're complete in Christ. Now, here's where the payoff comes. Look at verse 11. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest. That's the place where we thrive. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience of Israel. For the word of God is living, powerful, Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and as discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, we have all quoted that verse sometime, somewhere. We all quote it because we say, oh, that's the Bible, right? Only the Bible discerns the thoughts of men, the soul and spirit. You know, I mean, I believe it every time I preach. There's not a word I'm saying that can change a heart or a mind, but the seed of the word of God can. And it produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. But notice the next verse. Most of our troubles we never read on. There's no creature hidden from his sight. I thought we were talking about the Bible. Yeah, we were. That's why John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John Lennox talked yesterday about Genesis 1, John 1, and actually the entire Bible being information-based. So the world's actually caught up, right? We've gone from agrarian to industrial to technological. Now we're in information age. We finally caught up with the Bible, DNA, information. The problem is we have a lot of information, but the jump we need to make is to understand that Jesus and the Word of God are intertwined. Jesus is the one who can get between soul and spirit. He's the one who comes and is a discerner of the intents and thoughts of your mind. He is the word. And then that makes the next set of verses even more powerful. You quoted them all your life, probably not knowing the context. Therefore, we can boldly go to the throne of grace. I like how one translation has it. We can go to the throne where grace abounds and to the throne of our gracious God. Because Jesus is our rest, because he ceased from his work when he said it was finished, you and I have access to the very throne of God. Now, this is what makes prayer a game changer. And I understand there's intercessory prayer. I understand there's all kinds of prayer. Prayer is talking to God. And it's amazing, we have access to God. Think of the, the Middle Ages. Think of all the years where people were told that there was, there was something between them and God. There, there was a clergy, a professional paid elite class that would mediate for them. No, there's no temple in Jerusalem because the veil was torn and you and I have direct access to God. And we have this gracious God who is ex, ex, expending grace on our behalf. Now, it doesn't say at the throne of grace we get all the answers or everything turns out right. It means there is a place in this world that there's one person that understands me and it's God himself. 
And I can go there and tell him my fears and my dreams. And he understands. He's a great high priest. He not only made me, he was made like me. The mystery of godliness, he took on human flesh. And we boldly enter the throne of grace. And God dispenses upon us the grace we need for everyday life. Think about the ancient world. Think about today. How many world leaders could you get access to? How many world leaders could you see at a moment's notice? You couldn't even get me on the phone if you wanted to. And I'm not even important. Boldly enter the throne of grace. He knows everything about us. Now, we're not Sabbath keepers. We've entered into his rest. Hopefully, everybody understands Jesus now is our rest. But now I want to share with you what's really on my heart. There is a principle in the Sabbath that's very important. Jesus completed it. We don't keep it, but there is a Sabbath principle. And the principle is this. Everything needs to rest. Horses need to rest. Uh, if you've ever coached, athletes need to rest. Uh, buildings need to rest. Chick-fil-A rests all their restaurants on Sunday. There is this thing called a Sabbath principle that's very important, and I think it's the fruit of the Spirit we call self-control. You know, fasting was a way to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit of self-control, to put the body under in some ways. Tuesday, if you get my e-news, I have an essay coming out called Navigating the Digital Landscape. Uh, as a pastor, I've realized more and more this is becoming a problem, not only with adults, but especially those who were growing up with this technology. We're just starting to see the first books addressing this. Um, Sherry Turkle's book we have out at our bookstore she doesn't write this from a Christian perspective. She's been studying um, interaction of human beings with technology for 30 years. And uh, it's her opinion that we need solitude and self-reflection if we're ever going to bring something to somebody else. In other words, if we have anything to bring to a conversation, empathy or help, we need solitude among ourselves. Andy Crouch, who's a friend of mine, he'll be here at Sizzling Summer, has a book on raising kids in a technological world. Sold out of them yesterday. We'll have more next week. And then there's a book I've been talking about for a couple of weeks called The Benedict Option. Uh, this is a guy who looks at St. Benedict who retreated to a monastery and said, maybe in a postmodern world, we better start looking at this guy and some of the things that he did. And I want to quote you from this book. Uh, Dreer writes that in the traditional Christian view... Truth, goodness, and beauty are objective realities, qualities of God, and therefore intrinsic to creation itself. To be free is able to see and participate in these supreme goods, thus realizing our true natures. As Christians, we believe virtuously, not merely because God commands it, but because acquiring virtue helps us to see Christ more clearly and in seeing him to reveal in turn to others. The early church sought nothing more than to see the face of God. Everything else followed. Here's the important quote. Dreer writes, the man who des whose desires are under the control of his reason is free, and the man who does whatever occurs to him is a slave. And that's flipped in our culture, right? If you're out there doing your own thing, you're free. You're an American, right? This is what people die for. And if you're under anyone's control, like God, then you're a slave. Dreer says it's actually the opposite. 
He proves it by saying untold billions of dollars have been spent by advertisers over the past century to convince people that we can know our true identities only through fulfilling our desires. Say the advertisers, buy this object or experience, and well, you will know yourself, the self you want to be, not the self you are. He says it doesn't work. Everything returns to the mean of everydayness. In other words, who you are in the ordinary ways of life. This is the bag of goods you've been sold, and your children are being sold. You know, I tweet, therefore I am, right? That, that's the world we live in now. Dreer said, we need a digital Sabbath. Like everything else that's come and gone, we need to put this under control. Maybe not a day. Maybe a few hours a night. Andy Krause is saying you get like a basket in your house. Everybody puts their cell phone in. The iPad. The devices. We've all been out to dinner with people who at one time or another around the table all looking at their phones, controlling the world with two thumbs. God didn't give you two thumbs to control the world. That's the lie Eve bought into. Control the world. God created a world who said, why don't you take a break from all that? Your shoulders aren't big enough. God said, why don't you enjoy each other and let me take care of global warming, terrorism, storms raging in the Midwest, Midwest, kids taking the trash out or not let me deal with all that because we're going down a road where we're losing solitude we're losing something ingrained by God into life where we understand who we are and who we're becoming if we lose that we're going to lose our way if we can regain that we might be the attractive people the Bible says we should be People might start looking over the hedge at us, saying there's something about them. There's something they have. There's, there's something they have about life that we don't have. We're rushing around. We're, we're, we're looking at this stuff all the time. And they're looking at us saying, oh my gosh, there's something in them that's desirable. They are the ones who know God and are known. And we don't need a mandated Sabbath. We just need to follow Jesus relentlessly. We, need, we just need to seek after him. And he said all the other stuff will be added. Abraham was rich, but the Bible says he was a man of a tent and an altar. As rich as he was, he lived life like a pilgrim. Because the last time I checked, naked you came into this world, and naked you're going out. And the only thing that matter in between are God and people. 